Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. People fought really hard to ensure that I didn't win. I won handsomely. George Gascon was elected district attorney of Los Angeles County in November 2020. It's the largest county in the country by a long shot. It was a major victory for criminal justice reformers. The leading progressive prosecutor in the country taking over the movement's top target. Here's how Gascon explained it when we met this week in his office at the Hall of Justice in downtown L.A. We're larger than 32 states. And because we incarcerated rates that were higher proportionally than even some of the most conservative counties in the, in the state, proportionally we put more people on death row. You know, so we were, we were way out there. Back then, in the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd sparked a new racial justice movement, being a well-known advocate for criminal justice reform was an asset in this town. People were putting up BLM signs in Beverly Hills, and Gascon leaned into a message of radical reform. But once in office, as some crimes in Los Angeles spiked, there was a backlash. In Beverly Hills, the city council passed a vote of no confidence resolution against Gascon. But it became fashionable for affluent white people to want to be pro-police accountability. It was kind of the chic thing to do. At the time, I actually, I thought there, there was a parting of the waters. I said, for the first time, I'm hearing white affluent people understanding the suffering of black people in this country and poor people. And I thought, this is a reversal. This is a, you know, I was wrong there. Back in 2020, Gascon spoke about reform like an academic, appealing to voters by pointing to statistics and studies. But now that an effort to recall him has taken off, he's realized that it's often fear that drives the political debate over crime. People don't care about data. This is about emotional. This is about how you perceive and feel. And you cannot use data to deal with feelings. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. California makes it relatively easy to recall an elected official. It's been part of the state constitution since 1911. And in sour times, recalls spike out here. Governor Gavin Newsom faced a recall last year. He defeated it. San Francisco recalled three school board members in February. More ominously for Gascon, last month, San Francisco recalled its district attorney. Gascon's friend and ideological kin, Chesa Boudin, who had instituted many of the same policies. Gascon ended cash bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. He told his deputy district attorneys not to seek the death penalty anymore, to never try juveniles as adults, to stop prosecuting people for first-time nonviolent misdemeanors, and to stop using so-called sentencing enhancements, which allow prosecutors to pile on jail time. And Gascon did all of that on his first day in office. Almost immediately, there was talk about a recall. And those calls were coming from inside the Hall of Justice. The week that I got sworn in, they started to talk about recalling me that week. 
right and away. they had to be told that well you got to wait at least 90 days so this i've been on a <laughs> fighting recall since day one voters will know by august 17th whether a recall of gascon will be on the november ballot in the meantime gascon's policies have become a flashpoint in other major california elections in the los angeles mayor's race the right-leaning candidate rick caruso has condemned him the, the policies that he has put into place, that George Gascon has put into place, are causing us real problems and harm. They're causing our communities not to be safe. And the left-leaning candidate, Representative Karen Bass, has distanced herself from him. Nationally, Gascon has become a recurring character on Fox News. Gascon is best known for destroying the city of San Francisco. He was the district attorney there for eight years. And an unwelcome issue for vulnerable Democratic candidates around the country. The backlash against progressive prosecutors like Gascon even caught the attention of the White House. On the day after Boudin was recalled last month, this is what Joe Biden told reporters. I think the voters sent a clear message last night. Both parties have to step up and do something about crime, as well as gun violence. He reminded everyone that his budget called for more money to hire and train more cops. The backlash started from day one because there were people that were unhappy with the outcome of the election, right? Yeah. So it was people that fought really hard to ensure that I didn't win. I won handsomely. You know, I got uh, over two million votes, you know, and the week that I was sworn in, they were already trying to get a recall going. So I think that for some people to think that somehow this started later, you know, it, it really started before I was sworn in, in a sense. But it coincided with this, and I, I know there's a big debate about the spike in, in, in certain crimes and whether any of your policies yeah. are responsible for that. Yeah. And, you, and you, you can speak to that. But that, when you listen to the recall proponents, right, that's their main argument against you. Well, that was the place that they could grab onto, right? That's the place that they grab onto. Interestingly enough, and, you know, I said, well, if, if this is about crime and, and insecurity, then you will be recalling Republican DAs in Kern County or Sacramento County or, you know, San Marino, all counties that are near us where per capita their violence has gone up higher, right? Because what we know is that crime has gone up across the country, both in red and, and, and blue jurisdictions, but interestingly enough, in red jurisdictions, generally has gone up higher, and California is a perfect example of that. So it really flies on the face of the arguments that, that are being made. But when you look at you follow the money behind this, and I know they got some vulnerable victims that are angry and, you know, they're the, sort of the face, but, you know, you look at it, you got Trump's communication guys, 2016 in Michigan, you got oh the, really he's one of the oh the, tim yeah he was he run communications for trauma 2016 he's talked about you know how to challenge elections and all that stuff you know he's one of those is uh on the the governor's recall effort because it was a recall effort about, against gavin yeah. newson yeah. yeah he was running larry elder who was a this this yeah. very right wing you know uh radio show guy you have another guy who is a, a developer billionaire who gave millions of dollars to Trump and supports only Republican, uh, you know, campaigns. He's involved in that. So, you know, you have some police associations that were, you know, against me from the beginning. So when you look at the money behind it, which was a lot of money, by the way, they spent over about $8 million 
gathering signatures, and it's still not clear whether they have enough or not. They they turn them in. Right. They have to be recount. What they have you, to be counted. You think they'll be successful in getting on the ballot? Look, I I don't know, but what I am very yeah. certain about is that if the if the signatures in fact are there, I feel very strongly that we'll we'll win, much like the governor won. But when you have the the level of support that I have from so many groups across the county, uh, elected officials, labor organizations, it, you know, I, I, I continue to enjoy basically the same core of support that I had when I ran for office is very solidly behind me. In fact, you know, it doesn't go a day by the people are calling me and say, when are you going to start campaigning against it? And so I said, well, let's wait and see if they get the signatures. I mean, we're actually doing what we have to do. What is the what? What, did, what lesson did you learn from uh, Chesa Budin's recall? And then two, as you've seen this movement go from its peak of 2020 to the backlash you're facing now, what are the, the lessons you have for other uh, reform advocates and yeah. lessons you've learned personally? Yeah. So I mean, to begin with, concerning San Francisco, look, I mean, these elections are very localized. While the money may be national money, and we're seeing national money coming here as we did in San Francisco, but at the end of the day, they're local ingredients. In, and in the case of Chesa, without getting into the complexities of how people get elected, there is a ranked choice election system. It's very complicated. You know, he won by, by a very low margin, and, and he was, you know, sort of in deficit from day one. And then there was a whole host of other issues, uh, you know, very low-performing police department, you know, trying to find other people to be blamed for perceived failures. Actually, crime in San Francisco was down, so it's not even about crime. But I think one of the mistakes that Chesa made that I learned from it, and he'll readily recognize is he was trying to talk to people about data. People don't care about data. This is about emotional. This is about how you perceive and feel. And you cannot use data to deal with feelings. And I think that was a failure. And by the time he kind of woke up to that, it was too late for him. So I would say that the conditions in San Francisco are very different in LA for many reasons. Um, I think, though, the, the the lessons, and I would say for for others that may be considering doing this work or some, you really need to look for a way to come in with a team in place because it's very hard to implement things if you don't have a core team that then is going to help you infuse the rest of the organization, especially if you're coming to a place that is, you know, so way to the right, right? If you're coming to a place that you have a more of a mixture approach like, you know, Manhattan did or some other, that's different, but you're coming to a place that is so far against what you're bringing to the table, not having a core team is difficult. The problem is that in reality, for me, it was very hard to have a core team just simply because of the civil service process. But I could have probably done a little better had I planned ahead a little more about ways to figure out how to get people in. I thought it was going to be much easier than what it turned out to be. You're talking specifically like the deputy DAs. Exactly. And, just, and, and the head deputies, you know, the the, the, the management structure. Just to, for people who don't understand the what the system is like, what, what's a comparison? Like you're coming in here, big reform agenda, and would it be the equivalent of like, you know, uh, Joe Biden becoming president with Mitch McConnell as his vice president? I mean, that that actually I, I tell people when people try to, especially people that are not from here, I said, think about Biden coming in and keeping Donald Trump's cabinet. God, that's that, what this was like. That's what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so internally, the back the, the backlash starts internally. Your it, own it, it never, deputies yeah. are the ones behind the and, your, you know, your and recall. It's, and it's not the majority, right? I know they have said that they do this no confidence vote, but you know, when you 
because I travel throughout the county. I talk to a lot of people. I know how much peer pressure was put into people signing and they were tracking yeah. who voted. They were keeping tabs. People were being harassed. If they, it's a, you know, it's a small, but it's a very strong group of people. And frankly, you know, I don't even want to put any attributes there. I think people are doing what they believe is the right thing. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Some people believe that incarceration and death penalty and all those things are good things. And does it make it awkward to work here in this building when the people you're uh, seeing in the hallways are trying to recall you? You know, it doesn't because, uh, first of all, it's not universal. And I, I have a lot of support. Frankly, I could not do the job if it weren't because I have a lot of support. People, are, right. uh, most of the people are doing the right things. Even the ones that, that may question some things, they're doing the right things. So, so to begin with, it's difficult, uh, but it's increasingly easier because, you know, I'm building up more of a team. I hire more new people, right? So, you know, I forecast that in another year or two, it will be even, even easier. And here's one takeaway here. I, I would tell people... If you were unlucky enough or unfortunate to be diagnosed with brain cancer and you go to a doc, you go to an oncologist's office and this oncologist very proudly tells you that she or he practices oncology the same way that they did in the 1980s. I suspect that most of us would, you know, just, uh, you know, gracefully uh, look for another doctor, <laughs> right? Because, you know, technology and medical yeah. advances are very different today. But when you look at our work, you're seeing people that are practicing law under the same mentality of the 80s and 90s. And that is a recipe for disaster, right? You know, I mean, what is the definition of insanity? Doing the same things over and over again, inspecting a different result. Just to explain for people who don't understand how the DA offices work, you're not coming in here like um, like a, a presidential administration where you're bringing all your people, right? You're elected to run this thing, but everyone under you is um, carried over. Yeah, not only that, but you know, this office is actually one of the few where we have such a, a you know strong civil service protection that firing people is almost impossible. You, you in can't fact, fire your deputy, your deputy DAs. Not only that, you, I mean, even just moving people from one section to the other, you're open yourself immediately for allegations of retaliation. So even, you know, even bringing just small team of people was very, very difficult. And in recognition of that, I, I came to the conclusion that I was better off sort of laying everything all at once and then adjusting as I build up a team that I could trust. Because, you know, the problem is that adjustments and exceptions to the rule should be always the case, or most of the time, but they can only be the case if you can trust a team that is going to look at the exceptions and exceptions as opposed to, you know, just so having the exceptions follow the rule. That was, so that was, you're saying that as a way to say that you thought if the exceptions existed from the get-go, all the policy would be exceptions. Exactly. Exactly. Everything. <laughs> I so I, so I, I, because I did not come in with the team. In fact, there yeah. were literally, when we came into this floor, um, there were three of us, myself and two others, uh, four of us, actually. All right, so let, let's go through some of the, the, the five, you know, big yeah. ones that have, and we can just talk briefly about the 
what's been controversial about them. Let's start with enhancements. Right. Right. That's been one that's really driven this this recall effort, and some of your deputy DAs not so psyched about that one. Right. But ex- explain that policy for people who don't understand. Yeah. So to give you a little bit of historical context, up until the early 1980s, uh, our sentencing structure in the state of California was very much what it was around the world. Generally, you would have, a, assuming that you have a, you know, a criminal offense that is, you know, indicated by, by your penal code, the sentencing for those violations, if they were proven true, would be generally you had a low end of the sentencing, you had a mid-range, and you had a higher end. And the assumption was that, and by the way, sentencing is always up to the judge. A lot of people think that the DA sentence, we don't sentence people, we don't even set bail. I mean, this is all the judges do this. We we can ask and we exactly, but yeah. the judge. So what what the what if you prove a case if you if the 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 accused was found guilty, uh, then the judge will look at the case, and generally the defense would be arguing for lower sentencing, and the prosecution may be arguing for more. And you have sort of the, unless it were overwhelming, aggravated or overwhelming mitigating circumstances, you get the center, you know, sentence. And that was the end of it, right? And then you move into the 1980s as we start really getting scared with the crack epidemic and violence, you know, really increasing in many of our inner cities. And you started to create all these enhancements. So, for instance, if you had crack cocaine, there would be additional years added to your sentence. If you had a gun and you have been, maybe you have been convicted of a crime before and now you had a gun, even if the gun wasn't used, by the way, if you use a gun, there were even more enhancements. Just a simple possession of the gun that would carry an enhancement. Uh, you know, and then, of course, we got into the three strikes time, and that was like, you know, the mother of all enhancements. If you had a, a uh, one felony conviction and you get a second one, your sentence was automatically double. And then if you had a third, and by the way, they didn't have to be violent. They could be just uh, stealing a loaf of bread from a supermarket and not being able to show that you have money to pay for it. That could give you a third strike, and then you went to prison for 25 years to life. So that's where our incarceration rates just shut, shut up. up. And when I was in San Francisco, we partnered with Stanford Law School. We did a study. We actually invited this office, and they refused, to look at the impact of enhancements on safety in the community and on, on, on racial equity. And the outcome was very clear, number one, that mostly enhancements were being applied to primarily African Americans and Latinos. Uh, secondly, that there really was no correlation in safety in the community, but that what they were doing is they would inflate the number of years that people will be in prison. So one of the policy was we won't use the enhancements. There was immediately a pushback, you know, like from day one about dealing with hate crimes because hate crimes were going up. And I made immediately an exception for hate crimes and crimes against children and the elderly, uh, you know, vulnerable victims. In the middle of this, by the way, I get sued by the association. And, you know, one thing that I want to point, the week that I got sworn in, they started to talk about recalling me that week. Right and away. they had to be told that, well, you got to wait at least 90 days. So this, I've been on a <laughs> fighting recall since day one. Wait, so so right, so right, that lawsuit was successful? Well, it's it's a mix, right? So, in, and by the way, we're, we're in the process of, of, you know, taking this up to the California Supreme Court. You know, this office has been one of the leading incarcerators, right. death penalty, put young kids into adult prison. I mean, this this office actually led the way. So for the reform movement, changing L.A. was like 
the Holy Grail. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It was considered like nationally, like the poster child for what you and your colleagues in that movement thought yeah. was bad about. Yeah, yeah. It's a, the largest county in the country with, by a long shot, right? I mean, people say, well, what about New York? Well, you know, New York has multiple bearers with multiple DAs within a million people population, roughly. Got it. Right. right. Uh, really, the only, the the largest county after us or the second largest county is Cook County with Chicago. And they're, you know, just under 4 million people. We're over 10 million people, right? So we have no peer. We're larger than 32 states. So, and because we incarcerated rates that were higher proportionally than even some of the most conservative counties in the in the state. So it was not, you could say, well, yeah, you're larger than four. No, no, proportionally, proportionally, we put more people on death row, you know, so we were, we were way out there. And, and the idea was, and, you know, and, and in San Francisco, while we started to have a spike on car break-ins and stuff, the reality is we kept homicides at an all-time low. And that started, that reduction started with me as a chief of police. And I don't take credit for it, but I certainly was a contributor to that. So we were able to show that you can have reform and lower incarceration and lower violence. And, yeah, people focus on the car break-ins and stuff. But the reality is that when you look at the totality of the crime scene, in San Francisco was, had been very favorable under very difficult times. So I, you know, to this day, I believe you can actually reform and have a reduction in crime. You know, when you were, COVID happened and that. Right, yeah. right. But when you were, so just kind of set, uh, set the context in 2020 when you're running and what was voter sentiment towards the reform agenda you were talking about that year? Well, how, I'm trying to get a sense of how, it seemed like this is the peak of, what you and your colleagues nationally have been talking about for years now was around 2020, that this progressive criminal justice reform movement really became, in the Democratic Party, in the media, uh, something that was not looked askance at anymore, that was embraced as sort of a, where we're going as a country. You know, maybe not in, at least where the where Democratic cities maybe yeah. are, are going. I think, Am I wrong about that? No, 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 you're not. And look, I think that, you know, L.A. County was already actually, in many ways, L.A. County was ahead of San Francisco. So even preceding my, my coming here, L.A. County had already voted to not build a jail, uh, to take money away from jail and put it into, you know, mental health services. Yeah. There was already a movement towards moving young kids away from the Department of Probation and creating a, a Department of Youth services. So there was already a very solid movement within the county to go in this direction that was probably about four years ahead of me. Got it. What did the George, what did George Floyd do in terms of the message that you were selling to voters? At that well, point? I think that the, the component of criminal justice reform as to police accountability just became uh, all-encompassing. You know, all of a certain you had, it became, and I hate to use the term because because it, it, it leads into what we are today. But it became fashionable for affluent white people to want to be pro-police accountability. Yeah, right? yeah. It was kind of the, the chic thing to do. So you all of a sudden, they wanted to be seen with BLM. They wanted to be in demonstrations, right? right? And frankly, at the time, you know, I'm a little cynical now looking back. At the time, I actually... I thought there, there was a parting of the waters. I said, for the first time, I'm hearing white, affluent people understanding the suffering of black people in this country and poor people. And I thought this is a reversal. This is a, you know, 
I was wrong there, right? I mean, because we get into that's 2021. The group, that's the group that has, is the most vociferously against you right now as, as the well, recall? One of the, the, one of the, one yeah. of the groups, right? I mean, so we always knew that we didn't have kind of the lock them up crowd, you know, the right, right wing Republicans. Right. We never counted on them. BLM signs out in front of their house. Yeah, way. exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was never going to be in our corner. But we, again, you know, we looked at the math from the very beginning, but also again, it was this whole new group of people that, you know, was kind of the fashionable thing to do. Yeah. Right. So this is the height of defund the police and yeah, exactly. BLM, basically. Yeah. Right. Where there are a lot of pr prominent Democrats who were not afraid, maybe they didn't agree with every detail of, depending on what they thought defund the police meant, but it, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't really that dangerous to talk about that. No, at that politically, moment. politically at that moment, it was it was it was fashionable, right? Right. And right. I'm being cynical when I say fashionable, right? Right. I hope right. you. I mean, looking back at that campaign, you did talk about defund the police, right? You, I think in one conversation I saw you said something about it means different things to different people. Right. What to you it meant right sizing exactly the resources exactly. Because um, I've never been a supporter. Frankly, I think the term is, is not a good term, uh, <laughs> yeah, marketing-wise. And I, I, I always said, you know, we need a good police department. And I, I believe that deeply, by the way. I, yeah. you know, I spend most of my life as a cop, so I believe that good policing is essential to a civilization, right? I don't think you can do without. I think it's part of the social contract. But I always underline good policing. And to me, good policing is well-paid, well-trained, well-hired, well-supervised police officers, and right-sizing, right? There's things that cops do well. There are things that cops should never be asked to do. So defund the police is not, that slogan is not, that's not a slogan you use. I a, never did. I, yeah. I always talk about right-sizing. I talk about, you know, but I, what I did say often is, you know, I find it interesting that we're, you know, when people start, some people will be offended by the term. I said, we never got offended when we defunded public health or mental health or education, which we did, right? Yeah. So it was yeah. that kind of that, that uh, sort of that, the tension between the term that was de facto, we defunded our mental health institutions and, and our education in many cases. This yet became this lightning rod. And I knew also, by the way, that it meant different things. I mean, you had on the one end, you had the abolitionists that really say defund means get rid of it. Yeah. But that's a very small group, right? And then you had, you know, sort of uh, variations of what that meant. Right. About yeah. switching money from one basket to exactly. another, emphasizing exactly. some, some yeah. things, de-emphasizing others. Yeah. All right. So let's let's go through the, the, the policies that you institute at the very beginning and take us take us up through the present sort of crisis <laughs> yeah. of what's what shifted why the why this backlash you sort of go into this office with a with a head of steam right you're nationally mm -hmm. known now as the at the forefront of this reform movement it's being embraced by democrats all over the place and the first few policies can you just sort of explain to listeners who haven't followed this closely sure. what the sort of big ones were to give some context to this um, as I was getting into the last three, four months of the campaign and really feeling very strongly I was going to get elected, uh, with the help of others, we put working groups of subject matter experts on a lot of different things. So we did it on death penalty. We did it on youth uh, justice. We did it on crime enhancements uh, or sentencing enhancements. We did it on bail. And, and each of those groups was being led by people that were, you know, 
arguably some of the best minds in the area. And each of those were put together, a, at the end of their work, they put together policy recommendations. And then I you know, I kind of went through them and that became sort of the, the product that led to the directives that I was going to implement uh, the day that I was sworn in. And then the question became, because we had so many, we were dealing with death penalty, uh, youth justice, cash bail, you know, sentencing enhancements, police accountability. And the question become, uh, became for me, you know, do I do all this at once or do I incrementally bring him in? And it was something, quite frankly, that I wrestled with until the, until the night before my swearing in. And I sort of leaned at the end and, and let's put them all first and then work on refining them as we went along. Primarily because I realized I was going to come in into into an office that was going to be initially very hostile to me. Right, the 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 district attorneys association had spent more money than they could afford against me in the campaign. You know, there was conversations that I became privy to that if I got elected, they were going to do everything that they could to to ensure that I failed. That was even before I got elected. Um. I don't want to spend too long on this, but I do want uh, listeners to understand a little bit of your background. Because for our audience, much more of a national political audience, yeah. DC audience, what they're seeing and hearing about you is through the prism of, of national politics, right, right? Right, And so I just want to sort of get beyond some of those superficial headlines and start with just you know your background and how you got to this place. Yeah, and you know I'll, I'll try to be quick because obviously I'm getting older, so it, there's a lot <laughs> a lot of territory to cover, but you know, I'm uh, my parents immigrated here from Cuba. Yeah, very conservative politically, but working class people. I, you know, I struggled as a monolingual Spanish speaker. I dropped out of high school. I went to the U.S. Army. That was kind of the place where I turned around, if you will. And then by the time I got out of the army, I had already built up some. Did you? College. What year was? What were your? What was your army year? Your yeah, army I was years? in the army from seventy-two to seventy-five. So right, you know oh. the. You know, the Vietnam War was winding down. Yeah. Kissinger was actually, in fact, I originally, because I came at the very end of 72, to be exact, uh, late November, many of the people that I come in right before me were being shipped to Vietnam. So you didn't know going into the Army whether you would be shipped I was, or not? Yeah, I was anticipating that I probably was going to be. Although, you know, I was kind oh. of 18 year old. You're kind High of school like, sounds better than that. It, that's today, not when you were an a, a 18-year-old dummy spending more time surfing than uh, going to school. And where were you, where were you growing, where, were you, where was the family growing up then? Yeah, so I grew up in Catahay, which is here in L.A. County. When my family, meeting now my, my father and mother and I, uh, immigrated, we came through the Freedom Flights through Miami, but uh, literally the following morning we were, we were on a flight to L.A., so I grew up here. You grew up here, yes. And, you know, my family spent all their life here. We never lived in Miami. So my parents, well, my father's family uh, started to immigrate to the U.S. in the mid-1950s, so before Castro. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, finished uh, the Army, went into, on the GI Bill, finished my undergraduate degree, joined the LAPD, was in LAPD also for about 27 years, uh, went through through the ranks to become the assistant chief head of operation, which technically during the time I was there, that was the number two job mm-hmm. uh, under Bill Bratton at that time. You know, very hardcore uh, believer that, you know, the way to create safety was 
yeah. incarceration and accountability. You know, Bratton, I was Bratton was. No, I was too. Oh, you I were. Mean, right, right, right. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was okay. too, right. And but but during my own journey, uh, you know, especially after the uh, the the insurrection in 1992, which I used to call the riots, you know, but I call it an insurrection now because I really explain to listeners who don't who uh, you're talking about what most what a lot of listeners would know as the Rodney King the Rodney King riots, yeah, and. You call it insurrection, but just explain for our listeners who don't um, who don't know the difference between those things, or don't under, or would think of it as, yeah. the, as riot being the proper term. Right. Yeah. So you know, I mean, certainly looking through the lens of a, you know, uh, the time I was a sergeant working the streets, um, you know, this was a riot, right? And that was, uh, and, you know, and certainly, you know, if you look at it from very unsophisticated, very straightforward looking. You had, you know, people that were burning buildings. Right. They were, you know, vandalizing property. They were protesting. You know, obviously we know what they were protesting, you know, the, the politics of policing yeah. in, in L.A. But, you know, in my own trajectory, as I began to see the, the failures of mass incarceration and, you know, so much of the work that we were doing, I also traveled a great deal with policing. I was very fortunate uh, you know, to go to Yemen with the UN, you know, to look at policing and work with them. Yeah, man, I went to spend time in Latin America, in Colombia, Salvador, Mexico. Uh, I went to Israel. I went to the UK. And you saw how other countries were dealing with the same issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, there were a lot of failures in our system. And, and in my own personal evolution, you know, I, I left the LAPD in 2006 to become a chief of police in Mesa, Arizona, which is the third largest city in the state. That's where a lot of people nationally started to know your name because of yes, the because of Joe Arpaio. With Joe yeah, Arpaio. exactly. You know, and then, and you know, frankly, I was thrust in this uh, completely unexpectedly into this national immigration conversation and the role of policing and immigration and. Um, would you, when you, um, you sort of alluded to this before, but would you, uh, how would you have characterized yourself and your views of policing and criminal justice before you, you sort of got involved um, with this reform movement? Yeah, uh, very like, traditional, yeah. very, very traditional. You know, I, uh, you know, I was a big supporter of three strikes uh, when it first came up. I mean, it was in the police department. I would say supporter of death penalty, not necessarily I've never been like a proponent of, you know, death penalty wantonly, but I thought there were, you know, appropriate times that the death penalty, uh, you know, was was warranted. I've, I've evolved from that for, for a variety of reasons that we can go into. But, yeah, I would say that probably for the first two-thirds of my career in policing, I was a very, very traditional police officer. Lock them up, tough on crime. Yeah. And then, Did you, you know, have an opinion on, like, the 94 crime bill, for instance? At the time, I thought yeah. it was I thought it was great legislation. I mean, yeah. today I look at it and I say, what a horrendous piece of legislation. And frankly, one of the, I'd like to believe one of the reasons why we are who we are today, uh, it sort of led the way for the states to follow similar patterns, right? We mm -hmm. not only increase the levels of incarceration through enhancements, but we also increase sort of the structure of the, the carceral structure, you know, policing, prosecutions, prison, we build more prisons. We hired 100,000 cops, quote unquote, probably more than that by, you know, by today's standards. But, you know, we went from in the late, by 1980, 1979, our state prison system had less than 30,000 prisoners. 
by the end of the 1990s, we had 170, 180,000 people in prison. And the population clearly yeah. did not grow that much in that period of time. So in a period of 15 years, roughly, you know, we multiply our po prison population by, you know, many fold. It's such an interesting, and I know a lot of, um, a lot of Democrats have had a very similar evolution. People, people rethinking all of this in the in the Democratic Party and Congress. Let me ask just one thing occurred to me to ask you when you were talking. There is, have you um, have you ever personally been the victim of any serious crimes? Well, uh, you know, luckily uh, not. You know, like not physical assault, but I've had cars stolen. Uh, you know, we have been burglarized. My what city? Were, what was the car? Uh, you know, so here? I had cars stolen right here in LA County. <laughs> Did you get it back? Uh, I got it back, but it was not in a pretty shape by the time I got it back. It was stripped. <laughs> uh, you know, my parents were, their home was burglarized. In fact, uh, you know, I was in the police department at the time, and some of my police gear was stolen. You know, I had my car broken in twice. You know, so I have been the victim of crime. I've been fortunate, knock on wood, not to be the victim of an assault. Other than as a police officer, I was assaulted more than once, right, uh, on the line of duty. So, uh, you know, I, I do know what it's like to, to... What was the assault like when you were a police officer? I was shot at twice. Wow. Uh, fortunately, didn't get hit. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I had, like... Were you pursuing someone, or was it random? Uh, the, the first time, actually, it was a mentally ill person call and when we went to um um you know there was somebody else and we still never know how uh you know somebody drove by and shot at us then hit us luckily um, what city was that in? this was in the city of la in the watts area yeah uh you know and uh, it was actually a, what, what era was it was a i was a lieutenant at the time and uh you know so it's not like i was even in a patrol i just happened to roll when the call came out uh, and then we had another time, actually, as a sergeant, where, you know, my car was shot at. So, you know, wow. it, uh, you so you've know, been in the thick of it. You've seen I have, crime. I have. And I was, up close. I mean, and, during, and during, you know, during the insurrection after the Rodney King trial, I was in South L.A. Oh, you were? Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you about that. I didn't yeah. want to spend so much time in the past, but this was really interesting. Yeah. So what, just quickly tell us about your experience during that. Yeah. So, you know, at that time I, I was, uh, I had just, I had, I was working as a sergeant uh, in Newton Division Make a long story short, during the riots, we all went back to the field because it was everybody. And uh, so we wound up being in, in South L.A. And, uh, you know, the, everything was in fire. Yeah. And, you know, it was it, it was a very surreal time for me. I mean, the, the parts of the city that we were in were on fire uh, to the point that, you know, the, all the gas lines had been shut off, the electricity had been shut off because otherwise you kept feeding the fires. And uh, so... The smoke was so thick that, you know, it was pitch black. And you had, you know, basically you had fire trucks running everywhere. And, you know, you had police officers running everywhere uh, with guns. And you had people, you know, we made arrests of people with gas cans lighting up structures. Uh, there were Korean business owners on the rooftop with rifles shooting at people. I mean, you know, we, we saw all, it was all, all of that, right? Yeah. So, you know, certainly, and I worked a lot of, you know, significant period of time in patrol in, in very challenging areas. You know, I was in work in the field in South L.A. when we averaged 1,000 homicides a year as a city, not the county, the city. 
Oh, just dude. for context, what's that number now? It's around I mean, 400, and it's gone up a little, gone, right? Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, it's been now as low as in the 300s. But, yeah, we used to average, you know, between 900 and 1,000. We had years of over 1,000 homicides. Um, this was all during the crack epidemic and a lot of violence, a lot of police shootings. Um, you know, frankly, just uh, uh, a very difficult time, uh, not only for the city of L.A., but, uh, you know, for the country. Right. So when people when when you make this distinction that some people would on, on the right would uh, might mock you for between a riot and insurrection, you're doing that as someone who is literally there, saw this up close, and who's was I assume in some level of danger just working. Yeah, that, well, at that time. a lot of danger. You're not you're not you don't you're not viewing it as an insurrection from some ivory tower um, academic sense. You you were actually there in the thick of it. I, that's absolutely right. And the reason why I, I call it an insurrection today, and I have now for many years, by the way, is because when you understand the root causes right, of communities that felt that they were being abused by police regularly, uh, that they were being discriminated regularly, the economic hopelessness, that existed in those parts of our community that were in direct contrast to the affluence of, of the rest of our city and county. And you understand how revolutions start. You know, I was a very young kid in Cuba when the revolution started. Uh, you know, revolutions are the, 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 the result of generally, you know, a significant portion of the population finding that the system doesn't work for them anymore. And I'm Obviously, oversimplifying this, right? But that's yeah. that's usually how a revolution so starts. That was the kind of framework that you were started to think of that experience. One hundred percent. You know, I think that you know, I think that we focus on the in the outward images of you know people ransacking a store, or burning yeah. a building, but but you know that's a very simplistic. And by the way, that's a view that I used to have, right? You know, I mean, why don't they get a job, right? right. And right. by, well, when they don't get a job, they can't find work, yeah. right? Or the work that they do have doesn't allow them to to even be able to pay the rent or pay the rent and buy food, right? Which increasingly is a bigger problem today. So when when you start, when you sort of take a step back and you look at the the the, the social and economic conditions yeah. at the time and, and the people that were engaged in this, you begin to understand this is not just a group of people that decided we're going to start ransacking stores. Were there some people that took the opportunity to do so? Of course, you know, that's always a case. You know, you create a mob mentality. But yeah. but the fuel underneath all of this was the, the, the hopelessness of a system that was failing so many people in our community and the continuous abuse that they were facing. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And that's our show. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>